Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down once again with Thomas Neild, talking everything around data science and, of course, Kotlin. Hi, Thomas, and welcome to the show. Hi, very happy to be here. Or should I say welcome back to the show? Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is our second podcast together, I believe, and uh, we talked about a lot since last, since last time, and a lot has happened, too. Yeah, and I think you're the third guest that I've had back, um, which is great. Uh, you know, it, it's good that we're we're both still around after a whole one and a half years. You know, I mean, in this industry, one and a half years could be, mean anything. You know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and uh, of course, we saw each other at the last uh, Kotlin Conf, which was in I haven't forgotten. I think it was October in Amsterdam. Yeah, it was October. And you were once again there talking data science, right? Uh, yes, uh, I was there talking about mathematical modeling specifically. So, uh, talking about a broad set of areas from machine learning to optimization. Uh, yeah, so I had a great time there. It was, I was really happy to be back. So I pinged you recently because I thought, you know, there's, there's been a lot going on around the data science field. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that has become generally hype, um, and along with blockchain. Which it's <laughs> yeah. funny. I, I saw a I saw an advert yesterday uh, or a tweet. It was um, from someone though had taken a picture of Davos, and uh, the tweet says something like, uh, the, "Sorry, the picture says something like using a blockchain to improve cars and I don't know what and and what." And I'm like, "You got to be yeah. kidding me!" Like everything. Like I went to the supermarket the other day. And there was a big sign saying, we have a new application that allows you using blockchain to <laughs> verify how the product comes to the shelf. I'm like, do you seriously think the vast majority of people even know what blockchain is or, or care? I mean, oh God. It's, Isn't that just the nature of buzzwords, though? It is. That, uh, everybody's talking about it, even though they, most people don't quite understand what it means, but they but they get the impression it's important. I know. It, I, it, it's reached a point where I'm like, can't we just go back and talk about Agile? It was it was way more fun <laughs> than, than blockchain. <laughs> so anyway. I totally so, get that. I know. So um, coming back to buzzwords, and of course, uh, there is the, the, the quote unquote buzzword of data science, right? And mm -hmm. um, so there's been a lot going on in this field. And we, well, you were involved in some libraries uh, for uh, data science with Kotlin. And, uh, you know, we had a chat about one and a half years ago. So the whole point was kind of like to catch up and see has anything evolved? Has there been more adoption of of Kotlin in this field, what you're working on? Have you been bringing new things to the table? Absolutely. Uh, so on the library front, uh, I have been developing Kotlin statistics quite a bit. And I've noticed that there have been a few other folks that have started to jump in and start developing Kotlin for data science purposes and trying to create libraries from it. Uh, one of the most recent efforts I've noticed is Alexander Nozick. He is working on this library called KMath. And one thing I want to make clear is that is that um, he's trying to make a pure Kotlin multi-platform uh, mathematics library. So doing linear algebra, matrices, vectors, and all of that, which is kind of like a foundation for building other libraries, more or less. 
uh, that do optimization, machine learning, et cetera. And it's kind of inter- it's kind of cool to see this is happening more and more conversations are popping up like this and more people on the on the Kotlin Slack and the math science, data science channels are um, are adding their input and even and even putting in their requests for features. It's interesting to see that too, because there are existing JVM libraries, but I think with the Kotlin multi-platform uh, push that there is now a, a substantial benefit in creating pure Kotlin implementations from scratch now. So as opposed to basically creating like a typical, you know, facade of our existing stuff, we're talking about completely scratch from the ground up written in Kotlin, right? Yes. So do you think in a sense that multi-platform in some weird way is is pushing more people to write these libraries? I would I would definitely say so because at least, you know, when I started using Kotlin for uh, data science purposes, it's like, well, I have all these JVM libraries, you know, stuff written in Java, written in Scala, and well, why not just use that? I can put some Kotlin extensions around it and, you know, make it more idiomatic. Um, yeah, of course, there's some benef- There's some things I wish I had, but the amount of effort to re-implement everything from scratch, it's just like, I don't know if that's really worth it. But now with Kotlin being multi-platform um, and having, it kind of creates this new value in creating Kotlin uh, mathematical library implementations from scratch because there's a performance gain in the native side, but it's also convenient to have it compiled to Java as well. And even JavaScript. Last time we were talking, one of the things that we discussed of, I mean, if, if you take a look at Kotlin from a syntax perspective, a lot of people would say that it does resemble some similarity to Python, right? And Python is kind of big in the data science field. Mm-hmm. While the language may be similar, the main issue in terms of adoption was that there wasn't this whole you know array of libraries and utilities that generally people that are working with in the field of data science may need so now it kind of feels like you're saying that well you know now there's an opportunity for us to create a multi-platform solution and people are jumping at this opportunity, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Is that, am I getting you correctly? Yes. And, you know, I might've been a little liberal when I said that uh, Kotlin has some Python qualities and it, and it still does. I mean, it's very idiomatic. It, it, or sorry, not idiomatic. It's not just the idiomatic part. It's more of has this conciseness and readability value in it. And of course, Python and Kotlin are very different in that Kotlin's statically typed and Python's dyna- dynamically typed. But regarding the but regarding the multi-platform and that motivating people to jump on board, um, yes, the Kotlin native aspect, uh, especially, it's like, oh, well, you know, if we if we compile things natively, then that's going to be much more numerically efficient, and uh, we don't have to do it in C or C because. In the end, the Python libraries that do the number crunching, they're actually implemented in C or C++. And so this kind of has created an opportunity. It's like, well, why don't we just do it all in Kotlin now and use a much nicer language and use it part of the tooling system that JetBrains provides. 
And do you think that many people that, or, or the people that are doing this are doing it out of need or actually they're seeing kind of like a, a, an, a, I, I wanna, like an, a vacuum, so to speak, of saying, you know, this is my opportunity to, to provide something to the larger community that can use it because right now there isn't anything that's multi-platform that has to do with maths or is it purely out of need? You know, that's a good question and probably, and I can't speak for everybody that I've interacted with. Um, I do get the impression that some people do do it out of need. And by need, I mean, they say, I, I really would have a difficult time doing this in Python because maybe they need to put this in production. Maybe they need to integrate with a larger system, or maybe they need to make it part of a existing, existing Java ecosystem at their enterprise. And me personally, it's one of the reasons that I, I use Kotlin, I use Kotlin at work, um, you know, for these purposes is that you get a lot of value out of executing and building things quickly. Um, but at the same time, you have that static typing, you have that checking that keeps things bug free. You have the, you have the null, you have the, you have the null checking as well. And so essentially you create a much more stable product with a lot less effort. At least that's my experience. And I'm going to take a guess. I, I, like I said, I can't speak for everybody that that might be uh, what other people uh, see the value in as well. And that's absolutely fair. But I also, and the reason I asked you is because I kind of could picture people wanting to do this, not necessarily because they, you know, they need it, but more as an exercise, more as fun, more as they may be actually interested in the language and they're seeing gaps that they could potentially fill. And why not? Like, you know, why no, not start possible. to create an a, a, a open source a cross-platform library that has to do with maths or other specific areas of, uh, you know, data science that, that people would need? Absolutely. No, and that's very possible too, is they just see opportunities and gaps. It's like, you know what, this, this might actually... Uh, fill in a much needed need that maybe not everybody sees, but it certainly is a need that people may ultimately realize. Yeah, and it's it's very fair because a lot of times, you know, when we, everybody knows that essentially the best way to learn something is by doing, right? Absolutely. And sometimes you need to have, well, I, I would guess you always need to have an objective, a goal, something to accomplish. So if that thing that you're trying to accomplish is, something that could potentially end up being used by many people, it's even more incentive for you to work on this, right? Because, you know, why would I work on a library that no one ever is ever going to use in their life? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the reason, one of the values in open sourcing something is that um, you get, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. One of the values in open, open sourcing something is you, it's not only just putting your idea out there, but it's also getting feedback on it, or people may see things that could be done differently. And it becomes more of a collaborative effort where everybody wins. Uh, like for instance, yesterday, um, on Kotlin statistics, one of the folks in the community said, Hey, so how come you don't have, um, Kotlin statistics set up with this approach, you know, and building a chain of operations grouped by this and then men by that you know, in two separate steps. And I thought, I never thought of that before. And so he said he's going to pull in a pull request. So again, it's just the, the value in open sourcing, a library like that is not just learning, but also learning from others and getting more ideas aggregated together. 
That's nice. And there's also, of course, we got to mention the dark side of open source. Why aren't you doing this? You know, I, I, I'm going to wait until you fix this and, and, and send me a new binary because there is a <laughs> quite a there is. I would say that there is a sense of entitlement often as well by people that use libraries and, and really don't contribute much behind beyond. Uh, oh, abs oh, absolutely. And I've seen that in other communities, Colin community, not as much. Uh, touch wood. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the Colin community, they, they seem to have, I've not really seen a ton of that attitude. Maybe, I don't know, JetBrains does a decent job in the Slack channels, at least of, you know, making sure that those folks are courteous, but at least on the open source front on GitHub and whatever, most people have been pretty, been pretty nice. Although I definitely know that's not the case in other communities. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, it, I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't firsthand experienced any anything negative on the open source side with uh, with Kotlin, but it is true that you see this in a lot of projects, right? Especially projects that have been long running that people are using and, and essentially the project maintainer or slash maintainers start to get burnout, right? Because they're yes. kind of like, it's it's always just demand, demand, demand. People forget that I'm not potentially, you know, there are many, many times that people aren't actually getting paid for doing open source, right? They're doing it on their free time. So yes, and that's something I've thought about too, is like, you know, it's like when, when, a, when a side project becomes, now if you're dog fooding it, it makes it a little bit easier, meaning that you're using it at work. Other people are giving ideas and proof. It's like, okay, well, this is something I can take back to work with me. And that's why I think dog fooding a project is important. It's something you must be using yourself. Like I use Colin statistics at work, but if it's a side project and it grows to something bigger, that's, that's the point where you hope you can give somebody else the keys to it. Yeah. And this, uh, Kotlin statistics, which is your library, because we, we just talked about this K math, which you said that the author is trying to make, uh, or, or I don't know if they have, or their goal is to make this multi-platform. Are you doing the same with Kotlin statistics? Well, actually, so we've had a discussion with a few folks in the, uh, you know, in the math and science community in the Slack, we we've the approach that generally everybody is thinking of taking is that we'll kind of modularize different libraries. So Kotlin statistics, I would love to get off um, Apache Commons math, for instance. And so I don't really have a, J a Java dependency anymore, but rather I can use KMath for some of the core functionality. Maybe I can build some of it within Kotlin statistics. So we're, we're trying to create a specialized ecosystem where Kotlin statistics might have a dependency on KMath and Kotlin statistics job is just to create some nice interfaces and some common statistics operations um, against collections of elements, for instance. And are you modularizing this in the same way that uh, Arrow has done, for instance, or Ktor has done where, you know, there are hundreds of modules now for different functionality that you may need i am not familiar i'm not messed with arrow a ton although i did look through the documentation but yes the idea is to, is to not over separate things but just to say hey kmath is where is what you'll use if you need matrices you know vectors doing dot products and just a lot of heavy um, linear algebra work and kotlin statistics its job is to consume that functionality uh, to create statistical operators and to group up things and uh, make Kotlin, use, uh, create Kotlin operators that uh, helps with data analysis. 
And how's the progress been on it? I mean, since the last time we talked, have, have you added much to it? Have you had an increase in usage of it? In Colin Statistics? Yeah. Uh, yes, it's gotten quite a bit of traction for the past year, which um, honestly surprised me. It, it definitely seems to have struck a chord with a lot of folks, and they've I've seen some really positive things said about it, too. And uh, that's motivated me to keep it going, uh, to help go through the effort of making it multi-platform. Although um, Alexander, who is building KMath, he's actually helping with Kotlin statistics now too. So it's nice to have more people on board and it, it shows that it, it's a really nice place to be when you have an open source project, when other people start expressing interest in helping develop it too. And it's like, okay, awesome. This is, looks like it's getting somewhere. Yeah. And I mean, I, I had been browsing prior to us talking on the GitHub page and there's like a ton of stuff now on there. I mean, not only, you know, there's a lot of functionality, but it's very detailed. You've got a lot of examples, you've got graphs, everything that is so very, very nice. Cause you know, that's one of the things that always lacks, right? I've, I'm going to throw this up here and uh, go figure out how to use it. And, and 15 no. years later, still, there's no documentation on it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And there's been other projects I've been working on too. I mean, not in so much libraries, but I've gotten fond of of creating of creating toy examples, you know, demonstrating different machine learning and optimization problems and using that to present at conferences as well as like Java user groups and all of that. Yeah, because you've been doing a lot the traveling salesman uh demos as well, <laughs> right? Yes. Uh that was that was probably my, my gosh, that was probably the most intense demo I've ever built. Uh, I think I actually got carpal tunnel for two weeks working on that problem for, for animating it. And thankfully it went away. Uh, but yeah, the traveling salesman problem I had, and I, if you look at my Colin Conf video, uh, that's one of the, that's the first example I walked through, but that is a optimization problem, uh, where you have to visit all these cities, uh, on a map and you have to try to find the shortest round trip tour to visit all of them. Very simple objective, enormously uh, difficult to actually solve. And also, you've been doing some things, I mean, not only on the GitHub uh, projects, but we also mentioned that you've been kind of delving a little bit into the machine learning aspects of things, right? Yes. And uh, like I have an example, uh, a naive based classifier where I created this little demo application using Tornado FX uh, where you where you add bank transactions, you know, from a bank statement and you categorize them, but it should start picking up as you add more bank transactions, it should start predicting the categories for them. So like, in, for instance, groceries, utilities, uh, mortgage payment. And I've been using that example. And I also have a neural network demo I've built and I actually have a YouTube video on as well. And this was also presented at Kotlin Conf. And I created this very simple demonstration of predicting a light or dark font for a given background color also built with tornado FX and training a neural network to, to choose the right one. And I put a few implementations in there. There was this implementation I wrote from scratch. Uh, there was another one that, uh, used OJ algo and there was also deep learning for J's implementation, which was, I don't know that brought in like dozens of dependencies, but, uh, that's pretty much the go-to for deep learning, uh, on the JVM now. Where is the main focus in terms of, I mean, what platforms do people generally use uh, when they're doing machine learning? I mean, you hear a lot about TensorFlow. 
mm-hmm. but is it is it still Python? Is it is it more native C C plus plus? Is there a lot around the on the Java ecosystem? You know, it's that's an interesting question, and what I've noticed is yes, a lot of the exploration, the, a lot of the exploratory work is done in Python, and but on the production side. A lot of software developers, they actually, and this is something I've started to notice is becoming an increasingly large topic in the data science community is how do you take a model, put it in production. And, and so on the JVM side, there are a lot of equivalent libraries. Uh, some of, and Deep Learning 4J is a very large one. That's basically the JVM's TensorFlow. And I don't know what an individual organization's workflow is how they try to integrate you know the data science models with putting them in production whether they're ported from scratch which happens pretty often or they try to put it in a container you know the model in a container and you know scale it around the around a around a python implementation so it depends there i but i've noticed that putting things in production has become a very a large conversation in the data science community. It's like, okay, you have a model. How do we actually make it used? Yeah. But there's also TensorFlow. I mean, I've, at least I've seen adapters of TensorFlow for Kotlin, right? Yeah, I've, I've explored those too. Um, I remember when I, when I messed around with it, the, it wasn't very intuitive to use. It felt very weird. Um, I think I had to do a lot of casting against it. Now things might've changed since then. Um, but I found Deep Learning 4J to be just as robust as TensorFlow. And I'm not, I want to make clear, I'm not a huge deep learning user. I, I, I use other, I use other algorithms primarily, but Deep Learning 4J, I think is what people typically go to if they're going to do um, neural networks on the JVM. Is it because TensorFlow is a little bit more low level and, and it's harder or and deep deep learning for J is higher level, or, or what is the main reason? I think because um, I think it's because TensorFlow is not in its on its own, especially is not really easy to use. That's why even on the Python side, there's Keras, I believe it's called, which is a wrapper yeah. around TensorFlow um, to try to make it a little like a little bit more idiomatic because TensorFlow is very low level in how it presents its API. And uh, a lot of people try to build around it on the JVM. It seems like it's even harder to do. Yeah. I mean, if I, I, I don't know much about machine learning, but like, I assume that with TensorFlow, I can't say, hey, give me a give me a machine learning instance that can classify <laughs> images, right? It, it doesn't work like right. that now. Right. And it's, it's very nice, especially if you're a software develop on the software development side, it's very nice to just kind of know, I need to input these images with labels and I expect these outputs for them. And after it trains on those, it's like, okay, now that I give it a new image, what's it going to predict? And you don't, it's and ideally you just have to tune a few parameters and not really know how the engine works. I mean, it's an abstraction I think a lot of people uh, want. And it's interesting that we kind of like, uh, no pun intended, but we just kind of went with the flow and went from data science to machine learning. You know, over over the past few years, I have noticed, and I actually wrote an article about a year ago, like January 2018, I believe, Uh, talking about, you know, should we stop using the term data science because it seems to mean anything and everything um, to the point it's becoming detrimental 
when you're trying to hire a data scientist because they could be so many different sets of skills and you only need like two or three of them. And so that there's a lot of different specializations. There's a lot of different emphasis in different areas. Uh, some data scientists don't use machine learning at all. Uh, they do a lot more statistical analysis and data wrangling. And then there are some data scientists who are doing nothing but tuning a neural network all day. And so, and so there's a lot in, in my industry, uh, data scientists could be doing a lot more optimization work. So trying to optimize a transportation network, for instance, and uh, trying to find ways to keep things on time. So it could be a lot of different areas that data science works in. And, uh, and that's kind of why I think it's ultimately just kind of like, kind of like cloud was a buzzword, uh, not so long ago, it will start to shift and there'll be more emphasis on the specializations and jobs will be built around the specializations rather than broadly calling everything data scientist. So you wouldn't say that it's kind of equivalent to software developers being known as software engineers, so to speak. I would, I would, I would say so. Yeah. So you say it is equivalent. Oh, wait, wait, sit, repeat that one more time. So what I'm saying is that, you know, I mean, you could, you could apply the same thing to a software engineer, right? I am a software engineer that sure, I may be specializing in backend development, or I may be uh, doing frontend, or I may have more experience in Java versus .NET, etc. I'm saying, mm -hmm. would it be the same kind of thing here with the, like the data science encapsulating all of these different kind of uh, specializations? Yeah, simply put, I think it'll be a similar transition. Just like you know, when you see a software developer, just software developers, the title, it's like, okay, well, what what platform are they using? Are they using Java, .NET, uh, Python, even? I, I think there will be more of a shift where where roles will start to become more specialized. You're actually already seeing it on the data science community already. Like, there's there's a distinction now between a data engineer versus a data scientist and the data engineer, their job is to work with large amounts of data and preparing it and making it useful for analysis purposes. And the data scientists are the consumers of it. So that shift has already been happening over the past uh, two years. And I think it's going to happen even more. Oh dear me. I'm just wondering if that same thing could be brought into software development. I mean, we always struggle <laughs> with, I'm a software developer. No, I'm a software engineer. Now imagine you could have a software scientist. What the hell would a software <laughs> scientist be? Oh my goodness. I don't know. It, I, I imagine a unicorn that kind of is able to do all the above. It's like <laughs> I can do software development. I can also do, I can also do machine learning and tune every single hyperparameter. Those people do exist, but they are very difficult to find. Well, I mean, <laughs> what the funny thing about all this is that, you know, when I was in school, and the idea of going to university and getting an actual degree, which was uh, the actual degree was software engineer, right? Right. Was very appealing. And it kind of felt like, oh, if I don't go to university, I'm never going to have this title. And therefore, I will never be able to like apply for a job that requires a software engineer. And I did go to university university for whatever reason, you know, I, I didn't manage to actually after five years, I had to. Uh, for personal reasons, you know, I didn't manage to get my diploma despite basically taking all the, all the all the courses, right? But so technically, I am not what you would call a software engineer, because if I were to follow the rule of getting a diploma for that, I don't have, right? 
Uh, and right. yet we so freely and liberally just use this term of software engineer without, you know, giving it a second thought. And I'm like, why the hell did I go through six years of university? Which I don't regret. I think it was great. Uh, but, you know, taught me a lot of the fundamentals. But, you know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying, right? You, yeah. Say, it, it's like, well, when you say software engineer, what does that even mean? Like, what would it? And I'm, I'm very much a pra practical, pragmatic person, which is why I get along with Kotlin so well. And I, I think that a lot of industries have not been great at that. But at the same time, if you're trying to hire somebody with X specific skills, it's sometimes those skills can be so specific that uh, it's very difficult to get a candidate pool without trying to open up a little bit and consider maybe we can train uh, a person who shows that they're trainable. So it's a hard problem. It really is. Yeah. And I guess in the same way, kind of now that you are using the terminology of data scientists, uh, you know, is that like, did we normally associate a scientist with someone that has actually obtained a, a degree in some <laughs> something you know what i'm saying um yes but... i i know exactly what you're saying and typically most data scientists are expected to at least have uh like a master's or an mba typically there i know people who are self-learned and they uh, do an awesome job and they just have a bachelor's degree and there's some that have phds and i don't know if it's so much i don't, I, I really don't know how much how long the role of education is going to play and what's overwhelming about going into quote unquote data science is it can be so many different things. There's an infinite amount of things to learn and uh, you just have to always have that desire to uh, solve problems and, and hack your way through them and obtain knowledge over time, which in my experience, that's probably more, it's, that's probably just as valuable, if not more than what you get in education. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, like I'm not advocating that everyone needs a degree or that people can't use the word scientist freely. Anyone can do what they want. <laughs> At the end of the day, right. it's what you know and not what your title says, right? Like I'm, I'm the right. last person that cares about titles. Uh, but it's it goes back to this, what we were saying that, you know, you're talking about scientists and what exactly does that encompass a data scientist and are there going to be mm -hmm. specializations? It kind of feels the same way everywhere, right? Uh, right, it does. That's and that's a natural progression, in, in my opinion. I mean, we we all know what a lawyer does, right? You, you, nobody calls themselves like a, a, a legal engineer. Actually, does a legal <laughs> engineer exist? I wonder if that is even a profession. That's, that's something we're going to have to Google later and find out. Damn, I mean, if we got DevOps as a role, I'm sure that we can have legal <laughs> engineers as a role as well. Uh, but anyway, I, I would not be surprised. Yeah. So, uh, and and talking about the machine learning aspects of it. Uh, so from the Data science, you know, you are seeing an uptake of Kotlin, right? There, there's more and more people wanting to use Kotlin as as the language for data science, and and I'm and I'm asking you this because not not to bias your answer, but mm -hmm. we recently ran a was it us that ran a survey or I can't even remember who ran the survey that it was saying that seven percent of data scientists were considering using or are using Kotlin as the language, right? I think I saw that survey and I think it was from you guys. Okay then, that, thank you. I'm, I'm getting old, you know, I forget stuff. That's all stuff. right, no worries about it. <laughs> what, about getting old? Or... 
Oh no, not did you have anything to do with that? JetBrains, I've noticed Hmm. JetBrains has a lot of different different parts, and I know that it's very easy. It's like I'm gonna focus on what I need to do today. Yeah, Uh, I don't even remember our products anymore. Uh, So yeah, (laughs) so and I think that that's that's quite a good number, right? I mean, seven percent, like it feels Uh, very little, but for a language that you know, generally has made inroads into the JVM and obviously Android, 7% in data science is not bad. Oh, I'd say that's pretty good, actually. Uh, try, trying to break into an incumbent huge majority, almost monopoly, that 7% seems like an accomplishment. I kind of wonder what numbers for like, I don't know, Julia is, because I know that's another, you know, language that was trying to compete with Python and R. And one of my personal observations, and I think I emphasized this in a in a Colin Conf talk some time ago, is that there was a huge push for Scala um, a couple of years ago to go into the data science community. Uh, and I know, you know, two years ago, I still remember a lot of people telling me, yeah, I'm going to try to learn Scala, uh, but they ended up getting very overwhelmed by it. And Kotlin, at least when it's marketed as marketed in a certain way, it's kind of telling them this is a more pragmatic Scala. Uh, this is something that you don't have to get a PhD just to interpret what symbols mean. And you can actually focus on solving your business problem, which is why Python was so successful. So that that's my that's my opinion too, why maybe people are looking at Kotlin. And where do you think the future lies for us if we want to try and get more adoption? Like what, what do you think that we should be doing? I personally think, and I've, I've started to notice a lot of people um, mentioning this too, it would be awesome if JetBrains could help get involved in developing like JetBrains sanctioned libraries, like here is a linear algebra library to do matrices, vector work and all of that, and kind of create a foundation that everybody can build around. So like, like for instance, theoretically, I could build Colin statistics around uh, a number uh, a, num- a numerical library that JetBrains makes. Because when you create a numerical library that does matrix and vector and dot product work, uh, there is so much concern for performance and engineering the heck out of it. It's it, it can be a lot, it can be a pretty large undertaking. And there's been some really great efforts from the community that are being used uh, today, such as Coma. There's also KMath, which I mentioned. But it it would be awesome to see if JetBrains could could help uh, create a standard as well, you know, with Kotlin. And I hope that I hope I'm not uh, overstepping my bounds at putting that out there. But I'm just saying, in a perfect world, that would be that would be awesome. Oh no, absolutely! I I, I love to hear opinions. But so you're saying that you feel that if we were to provide these libraries, more people would take Kotlin seriously as a as a language for data science slash I think, machine learning? I think so, because like I said, and maybe I should emphasize this point too, it's, I think people take comfort knowing that there's a company backing something. It's like, okay, they're always going to support this and, you know, make it up, you know, always make it uh, well-maintained and there are people being paid to maintain it as opposed to like, okay, there's some people, there's some people doing an open source effort uh, on their own. Yeah, they're probably using it in their own workplace, but how long is that going to sustain? It's a factor, I guess, that people 
often don't take into account when they're adopting open source unless they do take into account, if that even makes sense. Like nobody really questions, hey, should I adopt, I don't know, React? Well, actually, that, that, that's not true because um, last time I was talking to Kevin Gallagher, he was actually taking questioning this because he was saying that like Facebook don't generally use React, so what hmm. is their uh, investment in it? Um, Interesting. So, which is which is a fair question, right? Uh, but you know, generally people, what I mean, what you're saying is that if a big name uses this or a big name pushes this out. There's the tendency, there's a high tendency of people adopting it as opposed to you, and no offense to you, you or right. any other person just throwing something out on GitHub. Yeah. And, you know, even even if it's somebody who's really high profile who made the library on the side, you know, obviously they're going to be a busy person. Are they going to lose interest in it one day? Are they going to stop using it for their own work? And you got to take into account that Kotlin got a substantial amount of traction, you know, with Google and all of that. Who? And with Google. Who? No, I'm joking. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I do think that there is a, there is a sense of certainty when there's a big complex platform that will always, that will always need some maintenance and need some love. Okay. At least there's a company that's backing it and using it. And, uh, that makes the community much more, um, willing to adopt, adopting it. Cause even in my own workplace, uh, when I was, you know, when I went to a new team and I was advocating Kotlin, uh, a lot of the conversation was like, will it be around in two or three years? And I had, I had to do a substantial amount of work to say, yes, it will. So, so that is a factor, especially for, especially for a lot of organizations. And regarding tooling, you think that we need something in the tooling aspect? Um, I've heard a lot of people clamor for like notebook support or, um, or what do you, my mind's going blank. Uh, so command line compilation as well, uh, using, so using a REPL, REPL, uh, terminal, uh, personally, personally, I don't, I don't value that stuff as much, but I know other people that do. Um, I'm usually perfectly happy working in IntelliJ IDEA and, uh, Whenever I model something, I'm kind of building an application, you know, from prototype stage day one. But that's just me. I, I know I'm kind of different that way. Yeah, no, but fair enough. Point, point raised. Cool. Uh, so what do you have in store next? You know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen this year. Um, I have had a couple of folks uh, in Dallas and Chicago. I'm going to speak at Java user groups, kind of do an extended version of the presentation I gave at KotlinConf in October. Um, I started to build more demonstrations. So for instance, um, Alexander Nozick and I, we built a simulate, we collaborated on a simulation of uh, customer wait queues and using uh, statistical distributions to uh, show an animation of customers walking into a bank and how quickly they can process depending on the rate they come in and how many tellers you have. Um, so a lot of interesting, so there's a lot of interesting projects that I'm prototyping. I'm also doing a lot of this stuff at work as well. I also got engaged recently, so it's oh, going to be a busy year. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And, um, and we'll see what happens with uh, Kotlin Conf again this year. I might prob I might put in another talk proposal, and uh, see what happens, and depending on where it's at.
Yeah, where do you think it's going to be at? Uh, I'm I'm hoping that there's a pattern where it'll be North America, Europe, North America, Europe. And uh, if that's if that's not the case, if it's Europe again, I'll see if I can make time. Um, however, my wedding is in August, so it might be a little difficult. So, like I said, we'll see. Cool. And uh, go ahead. No, I was just saying cool. I mean, you and, know, if you want to put your wedding as a higher priority than Kotlin Kong, <laughs> by all means, go right ahead. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm just, you know. Oh, anyway, we're going to finish this interview right now. <laughs> well, I got to count for my fiance things too. <laughs> as much as I love coming to Kotlin Kong and speaking. Yeah, um, we will uh, actually be releasing this info in the next couple of weeks. I hope by the first week of February we'll announce it. Uh, we recently tweeted... Uh, the question of like, where do you think it's going to be hosted? And we got something like cl close to 600 responses on it. Uh, I can tell you that there is someone that got it right. Uh, so the answer oh, really? is there. Yeah. So now you got to go and look through 600 responses <laughs> and see which one it is. Huh? It's like, okay, so 600 respondents, one of them is right. Hey, Deuce, hey you're a data scientist. Go figure it out. I know. I know. <laughs> I feel like if I had another piece of information, maybe I could turn this into a Bayesian, you know, a Bayesian probability. Yeah. But, uh, I'm afraid I only have that to work with. But by the time that this podcast is published, it'll probably be public anyway. So there you go. Oh, I'm look, looking forward to seeing what it is. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, it was great catching up with you. And uh, we'll chat at some point again. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Take care.